Welcome to Growing Up Fire with Jamie Coots. Seahawk, it is our commitment to you that you have complete access to the top professionals, industry experts, and products for your fire service. We stand by the service and products we provide. We are proud of our past, and we are constantly listening to our customers and exploring new ways to bring better options to the fire service. This is Seahawk. High level, safety, service, security. Please visit our website at www.seahawkservice.ca or give us a call at 1-888-791-4210. Welcome to Growing Up Fire, Season 2, Episode 10. I got Lou Wilde in the house and Patrick McConnell kicking and screaming all the way through the door again this morning. So uh, I know how much everyone loves to listen to him. You'll have to listen to him carefully, though. He'll be the guy going... Hi, this is Patrick. But uh, I'll crank up his volume and we'll get it going this morning. So, uh, Lou, here in Kelowna, thanks for coming out. Happy you could come today. Yeah, thanks very much, Jamie. It's uh, good to do this with you and uh, enjoying being here. You're, you're one of the rare guests where I sent you a text and said, hey, do you want to be on the podcast? And your exact answer was, we can talk about it. <laughs> Everyone else is like, no, I don't. But uh, so I, th- I appreciate it. And thanks for being here. Yeah. Um, for everyone else, I guess they kind of know Patrick. We've been on a couple things together and talked about some things. So we'll get a little insight into you, Lou. How, d- how did you get into firefighting? When did you know you were going to get into firefighting? Well, I hadn't really even thought about it until I was in college. I went to play baseball in a scholarship in the U.S. Um, back in about 83, 84. A friend of mine, we we're on a road trip, and a friend of mine was reading like the IFSTA manual because he was a volunteer firefighter at the time. Asked him what it was and what it was about, and he let me read it on the bus trip, and it really sparked something in me because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought about being a school teacher, and I came back from college doing two years down there, and the old man is asking me if I'm going to university to be a teacher and basically told him I'm not really feeling it. And he asked me what I wanted to do, told him that I want to be a firefighter, and he told me to get on it then. He didn't want me taking <laughs> any time to, to think any more about it. If you're going to do it, then just do it. Good pick. See ya. Yeah. So uh, joined the volunteers in Kelowna, and uh, I was a volunteer for – about two years just about and had been before the internet researching mailing fire chiefs from all over Canada like what are your requirements for getting hired and fortunately enough for me um, Kelowna was the only department that my eyes met the requirement and uh, tried out on the first tryout I was fortunate enough that I did well enough on the written and the physical and uh, I was one of three guys that got hired in 1987. 1987 throwing the dates down I know. <laughs> right to it he's getting right to it folks. Well I I found out earlier I'm the <laughs> oldest guy in the room so. <laughs> uh, maybe in years <laughs> only in years that's for sure Abs- yeah. absolutely 100% not in actual reality. Well, cool. That's cool. So you actually sent letters to everyone and talked to them. And I mean, recruitment's changed a lot, I guess, in oh, uh, yeah. over the years. In, in, the, <laughs> in the quarter century plus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That that was how we did things, right? You send an email or you send a letter to the fire chief and hope he'd answer and see what yeah. was going on. And, and he'd give you a, a typewritten note from his secretary that and a pamphlet that says this is what you got to do. Yeah, Toronto, Vancouver, Winnipeg, everywhere, man. That's cool. When I when I first started, I got to one of the ladies that worked with my dad. Her uncle was a fire chief out on the island, and so she got him to write me a note about all of those things, right? Yeah. And uh, I always remember what he said, right? It might not work the first time, but try, try, try. And I give that advice to folks all the time, right? 
not to give up on the whole process. And, and then simply because this is the greatest job on earth, so much better than a real job. Absolutely. <laughs> we were talking about that this morning at breakfast, you know, how, um, it's not just a calling, it just becomes a way of life. And, and, uh, you're so proud and happy to have this job and to be part of it and, yeah. and all those things. It's hard to shake it too. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk about retirement after <laughs> what that's like. The, the day after you leave the fire hall for the last time. Right? Yeah. For yeah. sure. That's uh, we don't want to start with that downer news. Yeah. <laughs> so you're in Kelowna, you work your way through, you're a firefighter, you, you work your way up in Kelowna, probably do some training, probably do some officer work. And then one day you lost your mind and decided to put in to be a, a chief officer. Yeah. <laughs> Something that we've never talked about really. Um, I was an acting officer, acting Lieutenant at the time. And they put the posting out for a couple opportunities kind of thing. And I applied as an acting officer and was fortunate enough that uh, I was backed by management to take a few courses. And and then when the applications actually were due, I was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to get the position and uh, got so the job. Went right from acting lieutenant to deputy chief. Let's talk a little bit about that because I feel like <laughs> that's a big step. Yeah, yeah that's. Uh, yeah. I, I took a similar step, but yeah, it's not the conventional way for sure. I obviously had my first round of officer courses. The opportunity came up, and just like a lot of guys, like everybody, thinks they know how things should be or could be in the department from equipment to procedures or whatever the heck it is. And I threw my name in the hat and thinking that at least if things go sideways, it'll be my fault, not bellyaching that somebody else should be doing something or shouldn't be doing something. So yeah, I was, uh, I took that leap and it was a struggle. Honestly, it was a struggle at times because I was now the supervisor for people that had been there 10, 15 years longer than me. When we go to those fires and we do those things, and uh, I don't know if Patrick would have been around then, but the officers would always push back. So I went from firefighter to prevention, not even an officer, just prevention training, left the department, worked for the fire school, and then came back as a deputy chief. And of course, the captains were always pushing at start, yeah. right? I was pretty young. and You get challenged, right? Yeah. 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 But it's still good to go through it and and to be like, I guess, learn the hard way. <laughs> Steep yeah. learning curve. And <laughs> yeah. It gives you whiskers, as they yeah. say. <laughs> there you go. And to move up through it. So so that's pretty cool. And then, so you, you do that for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. A very short amount of time. Yeah. And uh, boom, 2003 hits and you've got... Uh, yeah. we Well, I, I got the position in June of 2003 and July or uh, August, we got a lightning strike south of the city. And as you know, things just kind of became one of the biggest fires in the nation's history. And uh, yeah, learning baptism by fire as they call it, right? Head first <laughs> into the deep end, for sure. I, I, I love it because uh... I wasn't fire chief for very long before the Slave Lake fire either. Mm-hmm. I'd got it. And, and so there's so many similarities in our story and, and how we go. But you're an important piece to the Slave Lake fire story with me as the, and uh, you and I have talked about this some, and people have heard me tell the story, but definitely firefighting in Canada, you'd done an article after your fire that talked so much about um, having to make tough decisions and, and not knowing all the right answers, but just being willing to make a decision and and move it forward and uh so many times like i can't tell you how many times i was standing on a street or standing in a command post thinking you know what did it say in that article and what are we supposed to do and (laughs) it's fun to have you here i've heard the story a few times now as we've met but it's fun to have you in here and kind of record the story and and talk about the days leading up to it because i think you know as firefighters and patrick you remember having conversations with me about this all the time where you you get that gut feeling that it's getting dry. It's getting bad. You, you can look outside, you can feel it, and you know something bad's going to happen, but you just don't know when. And so, you know, the days leading up to the 2003 wildfire, you must have been feeling some of that. 
Oh, yeah. Like, we hadn't had rain in, like, 60-plus days. No notable precipitation. Very similar to this past summer. You'd walk outside from being in the AC in the, at work or at home, and you can just feel it. It's, if you've experienced it, obviously, it really it feels like we're going to have a fire today. I don't know how big it is going to be, but we're going to have a fire today. And within a couple hours, the trucks are rolling to something, right? And that definitely was how things were back then. You know, in mid to late summer, uh, things were so dry. If you'd go hiking in the bush, it was just, uh, there's crunchy when you walk through the pine needles and the leaves. And then there's that crispy where it's just deadly dry, right? That's how things were very similar to this past summer. You know, all you had to do was hike in a rural park. We had had a fire uh little bit earlier uh, probably a couple weeks before that up on the Clifton Road area along the lake where we were fortunate that it got spotted by a forestry chopper right at ignition point kind of thing and they got on it right away we dodged a bullet there and then we had the lightning strike a couple weeks later and it was like a big deal right it ended up being a really big deal yeah you were just telling me this morning, which is awesome, that you actually were on holidays. Yeah. The, the big deal all started when you had to tell your wife that you weren't on holidays anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I got the call, whatever. It was uh, a couple days after the lightning strike when things started to really ramp up out in the bush. We the Forestry had crews address the fire, like to work on it. But, again, it's such, an, and it's such a remote uh, location on the east side of Okanagan Lake that you weren't uh, the only support you'd get was from the air, right? And at that same time, McClure was on fire, Strawberry Hills, Lewis Creek, just north of Kamloops, there. Like they were up to their ears and alligators up there. So they were fortunate. They, on that first morning, they were attacking the fire. And then a couple days later, when things really started to get out of hand, yeah, I was on holidays that week and got the call from dispatch that the chief wants you to come into work. And obviously that's a big deal because I'm not the only, I wasn't going to get the fire out that afternoon and and I'm not the only assistant chief at the time. So, you know, it's a big deal. And when I got there, there was a person from the office of the fire commissioner that I met. And my boss asked me how I felt like being the structural incident commander for the park fire. Because at the time, we didn't know if it was going north to Kelowna or south to Naramata and Penticton. So it was, then they talked about, first time I'd ever heard the saying, big iron, we're bringing in big iron. As a structural guy in the city, you have no idea what that <laughs> they're means. they're talking about, yeah. Yeah, yeah just uh, from there. It just, uh, that's when the baptism by fire really began, for sure. Right. So, so you know this fire's going on. There's fires all over the place. The smoke's in the air, per se, I guess. Yeah. And, and you know you're going to have to make some tough decisions. And, and uh, it was fun this morning to talk about back then. We didn't really put a name on it. Like, SBU yeah. wasn't really the name. And, you know, all the jobs that you're going to have in the command post. And, yeah. I mean, even EOCs were kind of, I would say, still in their infancy back then. Yeah. Right. And so all of these things are kind of being done on the fly, delivered on the fly, decided on the fly. You talked about meeting a few people and shaking hands and saying, hey, like, how, what are we going to do next? And yeah, and you think they know, they think, you know, and, and really <laughs> no one knows. Yeah. Meeting this, the incident commander for BC Wildfire at the time. And I was really hoping he was going to say, here's a list of stuff I need can you help me out on this? And I'm more than willing. And when I met him and I said, uh, ah, what can I do for you? And he's like, I don't really know. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, one, what do you do? Yeah. Two, yeah. Uh, how can you do it? And, and the, the idea of sending engines into the forest was foreign to us. The idea of having forestry, uh, wildfire fighters with Pulaski's in town was foreign to us really on a big scale 
And he, you'd taken ICS one, two, three hundred, and all that kind of stuff, and you know the different sections. But when is finance and administration ever going to get involved in a fire? Right. Well, in a big way. You find <laughs> out that they're the first people you want called out right after you pull the horn for the firefighters, right? So I remember fighting about getting a PO with uh, finance for chainsaws and. They're like, oh, don't worry about it. Just get the chainsaws and we'll sort it out later. And uh, the two Judys, they, they uh, I bet they regret that sentence, right? For years, we were sorting out who got the chainsaws. Oh, yeah. Amongst the other millions of dollars worth of things that we bought and paid for. But um, it, de- it definitely <laughs> gets crazy. In our- it, gives, it gives finance people gray hair for sure. Oh, and I can totally see why, right? Yeah. It's, oh. uh, everyone's buying something. Everyone needs something. We're- From accountability, paying people, like... Where did all these people come from? I don't know, but we're paying for it, or I think we're paying for it. Do we have to pay for it? I don't know. Yeah. Is it? Do we just put twenty four hours on our timesheet? Or <laughs> right? Yeah. You're like, uh, I, I guess so. I don't know. I never signed one of those, right? And your finance director's having chest pain. Yeah. Trying to figure it out. <laughs> Sorry, you can't have a heart attack. We have no crews to take care of <laughs> yeah. you. Right? Yeah. So, considering the job that you were going into that you didn't really know you were going into what are like name off some of the craziest things that you think you had to figure out well i remember taking a drive down to penticton and talking to the fire chief about the ironman triathlon which is at that time other than peach fest it was the biggest event they got people from competitors from all over the world coming to penticton for the triathlon and telling him that it might be canceled and he was Absolutely not. Well, yeah, it might be canceled because we're going to, we might evacuate Penticton, who knows. And I'm kind of talking out of my hat, like, this is what they've told me. I don't know for sure. I've never been in this situation, but we might be canceling. <laughs> so stuff like that. Someone somewhere said we might have to cancel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you look back through your history lesson or your history books, we were in the midst of an election or a new prime minister at the time. So we had uh, Martin come through the the fire hall and we had Kretchen come through the fire hall. What, what's that like? The most important people in the country. <laughs> and we've had Trudeau in the fire hall. Okay, that was we won't talk recent. about that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I can tell you this. Some people are really impressed by that kind of stuff because they'll, in the welcoming line, they'll shake his hand and then run around the back to get back in line to shake his hand again for another picture or something like that. Um, Anybody that knows me that that's not my style, I was never around them. I like to look at them from afar kind of thing. I had no interest in Anyways, it's not about that. But having, you know, it's a big deal when the prime minister shows up to your catastrophe or your fiasco that you're in the midst of right and well you had royalty you've one step up right yeah she was <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of surreal but it shows you just what kind of real people they are when uh Kretchen, you're talking about weird stories Kretchen came prime minister Kretchen came they welcomed him in and he did his tour through the EOC and he was walking out and you got to think like the fire hall, if you saw it on the news, the fire hall was the Mecca for everything. Media was set up on our truck bay floor doing interviews with anybody and everybody kind of thing. And we had reefers of beer locked up and food and you name it was there, right? It was just a circus. And we had had, Retired firefighters from throughout the province had come here, like, I'll wash floors, I'll clean toilets, whatever. I want to help help out. I know you're not going to put me on the front line because I'm a retired captain from Richmond, this particular guy. And the entourage, after Kretchen went through the EOC and shook a ton of hands, he's walking out to the motorcade, and there's a crowd of people out in front of the building, and there's one guy, a retired Richmond firefighter, and he's leaned back in a chair up against the outside wall of the fire hall, and he's got his camera sitting there. And Gretchen's like waving and shaking hands, and he sees this guy, and he says, do you want to take my picture? And the guy says, no. <laughs> and he hands him his camera. The firefighter hands him the camera. He says, do you want to take my picture? And in front of 
200 people, Gretchen takes this guy's camera, takes a picture of him sitting in the lawn chair, hands him the camera back, and the most puzzled look on Gretchen's face as he's walking to the to his vehicle, he's thinking, I took that guy's picture. Why did I take that guy's picture? <laughs> Why did I do that? <laughs> and this guy, he's going to be able to brag now, John Gretchen <laughs> took this picture of me. He's probably got it hanging on his wall telling his grandkids at home. I love it so yeah. much, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a, the funniest thing that how that all kind of played out. And it was just like, yeah, that's surreal. Yeah. I, I just remember all the chaos that every time someone new came, uh, matter if it's provincial or federal or the Royals, and, and they always had all these weird requests. And, and so one of them, they wanted to get the helicopters to put some retardant box out this house for us so they could really get some pictures of fresh retardant on oh, the yeah. ground and what it looked like. And and uh, I said, okay, well, I'm going to ask forestry, but like I could tell you right now what they're going to say, minus all the swear words, yeah. it's going to be a no. And they're like, well, just go ask them. Like, tell them that the office of the prime minister is asking. And I said, that won't mean shit to these guys. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I'll, I'll ask them. And I went over and I was like, hey, you guys know this one house? They want to know if you can. And the guy lights me up. <laughs> right? A friend of mine. And he just yeah. lights me up. And uh, he goes, one, retardant didn't save that house. Right? Two, it's $15,000 an hour for that heavy lift helicopter plus the cost of the retardant. Who's going to pay for that? Right? And I'm like, okay, I'm not from the prime minister's office. I started with that. Yeah. Right. And they're like, yeah, okay, call them up and tell them for 25 grand, we'll box that house out for them. But we only take cash. We're not taking any checks or promises right now. <laughs> and so, which was awesome. Yeah. But, and, and so it just kind of turned into this whole thing. Right. Another thing they asked us when the Royals were coming was, uh, we need five guys in clean uniforms. We need five guys in dirty uniforms. You know, we need five guys that just came from the line. And mm. and so I could just imagine asking a guy like Patrick, hey, hey, you know, uh, could you roll around in your coveralls for me a little bit? I need you to dirty up because you're going to meet the Royals today. Or you just did 14 <laughs> hours out on the line. And if you can hang around for an hour and a half, they'll be here to shake your hand yeah. and want a picture of that. Get through the two-hour security lineup while you're, you know, yeah. you haven't eaten in 16 hours. Yeah. and. And so, uh, there's I'll, two chances of that. <laughs> yeah. None and none. But then, like you say, there's always those ones that really want to be part of it. And really, mm -hmm. so you can, yeah. you know, their uniforms are clean anyways. Yeah. <laughs> we can get them. <laughs> no names, Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you're out there, you had those, uh, those incidents that happened. How about the actual fire? Like, how shocked were you when you think back when it actually started to burn down houses in the city limits? Shocked is, yeah, shocked is not the right Won't word. Won't even cover it. Yeah, well, you know, right? like you've been there. And I, the way I would explain it, myself, two forestry, the ops chief, the IC, were flying. We were trying to figure out where another cat guard could go because it was really getting close to town. It, it's coming to town. We know that. So where can we cut a guard up on the hillside to hopefully slow it down? Or anyways, where we lift off from close to the main fire hall downtown. And we fly out south to the mission area. And I remember we're flying through the smoke. We've got approval from Helco to go into the active area where they're bucketing and stuff. And I remember flying through the smoke and it's like driving through fog and you think you see headlights and oh yeah, there's a car coming, right? We're flying and then the smoke is getting orange and orange. And then we come out of the smoke because the convective column is going up and the air is actually quite clean right close to the fire. And for people that know Kelowna, we're flying over Crawford Estates. And I can remember looking left and right and seeing flame the entire, as far as you could see, east and west coming down that flank. And it was rank six fire. And I remember the, the incident commander that we were flying with for wildfire, he had been doing the job 30 years and had never seen rank six that close to houses. I told people at that time I had never been to the Niagara Falls. 
But to me, it looked like what I had seen, the Niagara Falls, only fire. And seeing flame that was three times higher, four times higher than the treetops, 60, 80 foot trees. Shock, yeah. Wow, like it was beyond comprehension. And to see it firsthand like that was just, it was emotional, it really was. And I remember I made a phone call to our dispatch saying, tell the EOC they need to evacuate Crawford Estates right now. Everybody needs to go. And so they got the cops and knocking on doors and stuff. And I remember flying back and to the fire hall and meeting with people from the EOC and telling them, like, we need to evacuate, pinpointed on a map where we need to do it. It needs to happen this quick. And people asking me, like, is it really that bad? And I told them, if this fire burns to Bernard Avenue tonight, I won't be shocked. You could take the biggest commercial fire you've ever seen and multiply it by a thousand times, man. It was, and I'm telling you, Scott. Yeah. No, no, you're, you're, you're telling people. That I don't know how to paint the picture, but yeah, if there's, yeah. it was a holy crap fire. Those, those calculations where I guess where it goes from, we'll hold it at the edge of the city to what part of the city will we hopefully be able to hold it in. Yeah. And that realization is, I mean, yeah. unbelievable. When you're when you're talking about cutting a cat guard out in Crown Land to save part of the city, to change from that tact to where in the city can we accept as acceptable losses of that neighborhood and coming back and telling people we're likely gonna lose that neighborhood tonight. Really? Yeah, yeah, we are. And they all have a friend or know someone that lives up there or been or in they there do, or, yeah. or they do. Those yeah. people were working in our EOC and yeah. And to come back and tell people that it was, yeah. You talk about surreal like stories all day long. Yeah. It's a, I, I think, you know, to drag Patrick in here when we were up in uh, Beacon Hill drive, up in Beacon Hill, Fort McMurray. And I think that you and Ryan and I were the only ones still at that time, like fires dropping in the neighborhood that we're in. And I think we were still the only ones that really believed that we were not going to stop that fire. Yeah. I mean, that one was, we saw it as we pulled up and then you knew you had minutes. And then once it impacted the community, I mean, there was just not enough resources house to house ignition you factor that in and where it wasn't so much what's going to happen here is what's behind us like where is this going because this is already toast and yeah you might be able to do some good but you're you're a day behind the ball yeah you just left station one downtown and you know this fire could penetrate right to that phone them and tell them to get ready because it's minutes to there so yeah i uh the evacuation is always you know you brought that up and and it's always a part that it's crazy. Like people are just like, well, I'm not going to evacuate. I'm going to stay. They got their garden hose in their hand or their bucket of water or a pump even for their pool. And they don't understand. I, I often, um, people ask me about rank one, rank two, rank three fires. And there's a picture of in one of the courses Patrick developed of those six fires and, right. and what those mean. And I, I don't type anything. I just send them pictures and say, Picture's worth a thousand words. You just saved me 6,000 words. Here's what you got. It's so true. Like to see those fires in their unprecedented, unstopped, unstoppable way that they're going to go. And when they slam into these communities, people just like, you just don't get that you can't stand there with a garden hose. Yeah. And I think like this past summer was very emotional for so many people in British Columbia, right? There were so many communities impacted by wildfire this summer and i spent uh, a month out on the fire ground in different locations chatting and dealing with and debating with very emotional homeowners and trying to express what they could encounter you know talking to 60 people in a small community that they need to leave because they live in the forest and trying to express to them that if this fire comes over the ridge and comes in here, it will look like the moon here when it's done. And that's why you need to leave because 
it will be incinerated to where you can't build on your foundation anymore. So I just uh, finished my 419th fire hall tour last night. <laughs> and uh, one, one of the things that I've really noticed in, I would say, the last two or three years is the aluminum puddle art. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, all these wildfire communities and, and you get... Uh, you walk in there and there's this huge puddle of aluminum that's kind of turned into an art piece. Yeah. And so for a firefighter, we all know where that came from and everyone else just thinks, Oh, what a cool art piece. Like that's mm -hmm. not unlike a firefighter to have art on the wall. And it's <laughs> not like, it's not art. It's a crazy reminder of what a camper turns into or in a rim or a Ford F-150 now with the aluminum body. Yeah. So, you know, those kind of things are becoming more and more prevalent in the fire hall in the fire station mm -hmm. and so people are starting to kind of learn about those things right yeah and so um, one of the reasons i wanted to have both of you guys in today was that uh well i guess one i learned a lot from both of you guys and i watch what you guys are up to all the time and we talk about these kinds of things patrick you're working with a team of people developing spu basic and advanced courses and lou you're working with bc wildfire and, and all of the fire chiefs and and retired fire chiefs that are around here on SPU courses. And it's fun to me to hear like you guys get together and talk about, well, what about this? And, you know, come to this course and you come to that course. And really just the, I'm so excited that one courses are being developed and, and I think properly, I think that I'm excited that the courses are available so widespread now and people are into them and it's kind of changing. We got some forward momentum on structure protection and that just maybe we can keep everyone safe enough that we can go out there, be safe, save some structures and get everyone out of there. Right. Lou, let's start with you here. You retire, right? You've been deputy chief ops. You've been doing that for a while. You decide to retire in true retirement fashion. You're not going to just sit around and do nothing. And so you kind of get involved in all of this SPU work that's been, you know, the second half of your career and now your retirement. How's that feel to be back out there? It's good. It, it, getting your hands dirty again is nice. I spent 14 years in management. So, yeah, it's nice to get out in the field and actually smell smoke once in a while. <laughs> yeah, I retired in 17 and I had we had a busy year that year provincially ended up working as a, uh, a group supervisor out of Williams Lake for, I don't know, we had five task forces, figure that out, how many people we had working up there. Not a lot of fire action, but it was my first introduction to outside our regional district. In the central Okanagan, I think with the activity that we've had in the years past, we were fairly dialed as far as running big shows like that, fires that last a week or two or whatever. But being up there, having to assign people as task force leaders that you really had no idea their capabilities. They had no idea. They were, you could see in their eyes that I'm going to be a what? <laughs> and what do I do? That kind of stuff, right? So there was definitely a lot of need there for training, in my mind, especially task force leaders. Fortunately, there's some local guys from West Kelowna and from Penticton, Chief Larry Watkinson from Penticton, Chad Gartrell, Brent Watson, who are ACs in West Kelowna. They had already been talking about the need for structural people to be trained in wildland operations on a bigger level, different than just cutting guards and stuff like that. So, yeah, building task force leader courses building uh, the engine boss course. And that was all based out of and, and developed for the Penticton Wildfire Symposium. Okay, and so coming up in yeah. a few weeks, yeah. And uh, BC Wildfire guys, uh, Jamie Svensson and Gord Parker, a number of these guys that were SPSs were fine tuning the sprinkler course, the 115 course, and really building a course, Wildland Firefighter 1, for structural people in the wildland environment. So, yeah, it just kind of got momentum like that. And now we've got everything from uh, the Wildland Firefighter 1, which is actually a train-the-trainer program, so people can go back home and teach it to everybody, right up to uh, Penticton Symposium in April, where um, Larry Watkinson is going to be training the 
div soup and the branch director course. So we've kind of got all of that together now into one finally. place and <laughs> yeah. yeah and good buy-in by the OFC and and BC Wildfire. They acknowledge the courses and they sponsor and all that kind of stuff. So nice. yeah. Acres Emergency Vehicles, a message from our community. A person who is risking his or her life to save the lives and properties of others deserves something as reliable as an Acres Emergency Vehicle. This is our mission, to thank these people with the best gift we can, our best effort. Our commitment includes a firefighter-driven design, manufacturing integrity, personal and professional service. We are here to serve. We guarantee personal and professional service every step of the way. Acres Emergency Vehicles, built for a life of service. Please visit our website at www.acresev.ca. So, so meanwhile, Patrick, you come from Alberta. You're living in BC now, but uh, working with a group of people to, to do some of the same type of training. As you develop that course, right? So you've been kind of at the start of it in your career. You were just a younger guy rolling in through Slave Lake in the aftermath of that and the Fire Smart crew and, and Fort McMurray and all of those pieces. When you're developing those courses, what are some of the things that you remember from the line, remember from the from the ground that you're like, hey, we got to do better with this? What are some of the things you're putting into that course? I think the biggest thing for us is a lot of us, when we got started in Slave full-time, we were all volunteers and been through the Slave fire. So then you see mistakes made or things you didn't know before and you learn the hard way. And then uh, fast forward that to getting full time and starting to go on more deployments and still not really knowing what you're doing because the training wasn't there. They had some good kind of theory in place and other places we'd steal from to try and learn what we could was good. But you get out in the field and of course every situation is different and you just make a ton of mistakes. And I don't mean mistakes where guys get hurt or we lose too much or anything. Just operationally, you know, you could be smarter with your equipment and faster and and you know, more efficient really is the word. Yeah. And then we just started coming home and making changes every time. Add this piece of equipment. We're not doing that that way anymore. This works better than what we were doing. And it wasn't not really, we didn't have the luxury of having lots of mentorship where people had been through that and had told us, we just went out there and screwed up and ended up putting it all together they're not mistakes they're learning opportunities (laughs) yeah exactly i like to think of as mistakes because every firefighter makes mistakes right and you know when you explain this to people and they see it's genuine i mean that's our biggest thing is we're not trying to start a business or anything it's more just we don't want people to have to go through that and you think we were just one crew right you got dozens of crews have to go and make all those same mistakes over to come home and change all those things and learn those lessons the hard way we just went well we did it all we made all these changes and we still got lots to learn and there's more yeah. changes to make, but you know, why don't we put it together and try and get some of that good info out there. And our stuff, we look at it as a best practice course, right? Mm-hmm. And that's constantly evolving and changing where, you know, we might go do a course or go do a deployment and you learn something else while yeah. you update and implement that into our training and try and get it out there as best you can. What And you see that like not only with the training, but with the equipment, right? And so some, some uh, people, I won't even say the one because their social media is so strong. They sell sprinklers just based on their name, but um, might not even be the best stuff, but they drive it forward with how they present it and what they do. I can think back to way, way, way a long time ago. There was one guy in Alberta that built sprinkler trailers. He's the only one that talked about it, the only one that knew it, the only one that had it. He had three of them. He rented them out. Fast forward today, which community doesn't? have a structure protection trailer um you know i was in lumby last night and there's a freshly minted captain young guy eager you know talking about going on deployments and taking their tender out to this place and that place but that's all they have right they don't have a pickup pulling a trailer they don't have a engine they're taking they're just going as a tender and and doing these different things and i think to you know how deployments the first time we ever got called and all the stuff we sent Right. We sent our own little baby task force. And then at the end, it was like, well, we're just sending four guys in a pickup and they're going to help out wherever they can. And and so I don't know where it's all going to go, but I loved it when we were talking about all of this. And I'm sure, Lou, you've had the similar experience. You, you reach out to everyone else. Right. So Colorado's big in this and they've been doing it for a long time. Cal Fire's big in this. They've been doing it for a long time in a big way. And so you start to read their material and it's not rocket science, 
we're just taking Patrick, you said it best, I think, best practices. We're taking all these good things that we learned from all of these terrible incidents and kind of moving it forward. But then you can have all the preparation, all the training, everything that you want in the world, and it happens so fast that the fire burns through and down, burns down a town before people can even run away, right? And so it's that time and place thing. You, If you have time, you can get where you need to be and you can have everything in place and you can fight the best fight that you can put up, fire's still gonna do what fire's gonna do. If you don't have time, you're reacting, right? So you're reacting to all those things, getting stuff in there after the math, trying to put out stuff. And and so uh, I often think back to the community of Chisholm 2000. If they would have just let us stay in there, if they wouldn't have pulled us out, could we have saved some of those 10 houses? They Some of those places burned down after the fire already blew through there. But back then, no one ever thought of letting us stay in there or, you know, there was no protect in place. There was no, how could we survive in here? We didn't do structure defense plans and it was just all the call in Kelowna in 2003, the call went to the OFC saying, send us everything you got. We had a septic company from Alberta show up and I assume they were hired by the OFC but a guy brought out two septic trucks to haul water for us. Used our poop trucks to put out your fire, Lou? No, we, <laughs> we, we sent them packing, but uh, yeah. And, and we had a guy at the helicopter engine on a manifold and spray water and we, you name it, it came. But I think uh, like Patrick was saying, um, the more you network or the more fires you go to or the more mutual aid or whatever that comes into your town and you learn their mistakes the easy way from a story where you see how they set up their truck or they've got this wildland gizmo that they use on their truck and hey that's pretty cool why don't we buy one or build one or yeah you know sprinklers are my favorite everyone thinks they're creating this new spaceship eh? should they think they're elon musk they made a new but they all got the same sprinkler head on them exactly that they got from china for four bucks and they put a different base on it or they put a different connection on it or well no mine's different it has a 45 not a 90 (laughs) oh okay that's awesome yeah look mine's way different i i drilled two holes in the oh okay well and you know like you were saying the fire's the fire is the fire and it's going to do whatever the heck it wants with, with the topography influence, with the weather influence, and it's going to just go and it's just going to consume fuel till there's no fuel. And the best you can do is try to get out in front of it. Like, I mean, be prepared, not in front of it necessarily, yeah. but kind of deflect it off of the community in some way. And so it doesn't steamroll right through town. And if you're fortunate, you might get lucky and be in the right place where you can do a little bump and run tactics or fire front following and save some houses and deploy sprinklers, you know, to get some humidity out there and, and give structures a chance. But at the end of the day, the fire is going to do whatever the heck it wants. Yeah. I think that's a good point too. Cause a lot of, you may see, and I'm in the equipment side lots and the guys that I work with, they, they're always big on trying the new stuff and different techniques to improve our efficiency and stuff. And that's great. But a lot of sometimes what you see out there in equipment that's coming out nowadays or even technique and some things work for certain things, but you have to remember the weather. We don't burn communities down when we got high humidities and the temperatures aren't crazy. Like it's usually the worst conditions of the year. Yeah. Most extreme, driest, hottest, windiest day. So you got to prepare for that because that's, if it wasn't that, like forestry can mostly handle them, right? So yeah. outside of that, that's where we come into play. And it's that's where I'm big on the training because we train a lot for everything else. Structure fires, car wrecks, medicals, you name it. We're getting way better at training on interface fires. But we we got to train to the conditions you're going to be in too because they're not going to be pretty. They're not going to be right. the easy days. The easy days are the easy days. We'll handle that in our normal operations. But yeah. yeah, like you say there, they never call us for that, right? Someone, Someone's handling that. I, I think back to, you know, the fire smart talks we had. And to me, prior to 2011, I would say fire smart was just that black book with the red coil on the side with the flames on the front. Everyone remembers those initial. They came in the mail. We all read through them, I guess we'll say, yeah. or put them on our shelf and, and we had them. Um, knew the name fire smart but when you really dig into that later on you know we got 20 million bucks and they said 
fire smart the community make it a into the fabric of the community and and no one knew what that meant and i was like you gotta that's a nice sentence right those are those flashy cool things that you tell someone you got to do when you give them 20 million bucks but what does that mean and i can always remember early on patrick would always talk about and when the fire comes it doesn't matter if it's a spruce tree or pine tree or a fir tree or a house tree and and i would be like dead stop like what did he just say (laughs) But it was true. And, mm-hmm. and you, you would talk like that, how it was just like, that's another kind of tree and it's going to, it's big and it's got fuel. lots of fuel and it, it'll go like every other one. And so whether we're separating fuel away, which means houses, whether we're, you know, whatever we're doing, that house, once you get the people out, it's just another tree, which people don't love hearing us talk like that. But, you know, when the forest fires raging and we're losing a dozen houses at a time, we got to do what we got to do to save the rest, right? And so that always kind of drove me, I think. And and I always thought, hey, you know what? Let's invest in training. Let's get everybody going the training. And and uh, you know, I'm big for the ego, turf, time, and money talk. And and it just pissed me off to no end that um, there was turf problems and ego problems in this new SPU world and everyone was fighting for their place and everyone thought they were the best. I think I see a lot of that going away now and you start to see more of this symposiums, more training sessions, more, you know, let's just get these people out, find out what they're saying, right? Learn some best practices, get some good equipment, right? And, And move forward. We've been fighting over Mark III pumps for as long as I've been a firefighter <laughs> and uh, everyone use Mark three, don't use Mark three. And, but again, it's that take a step back. Is Mark three a good pump for what it's designed for and does? Absolutely. You know, is a BB four or B two X pump good for what it does and what it, yes, it's a good pump. Can you substitute one of those for a, a CET or a, you know, fill in whatever a watchress or yes. Right. But it's all about the specs and uh, so I, I would say that when we were doing the instructor course for the basic program, that Patrick and a guy by the name of Glenn Martin pushed us to do things with pumps and sprinklers that no one had any idea they could do. Setting up different systems and, and making these things deliver more water into areas that we never thought were possible. So when I flash back to, I would say, 1998, when I saw my first sprinkler you know, that someone picked up from Walmart and threw out there and said, yeah, we'll build a long line of these and it'll be a, and we're all like, yeah, okay, take your junk back to Walmart, right? How far it's come and, and how much better it's getting. So you guys are out there, you're in the front lines, you're, you're looking at it, you're seeing it. You know, what are some things that you're seeing? Which sprinklers do you love? Which hose do you love? Which pumps do you love? Well, in BC Wildfire, in the structure protection end of things, you talk about moving the ball ahead an inch at a time every year, and hopefully, sounds bad, firefighters understand this, hopefully you have a good year where you got some fires where you can learn from yourself, like situations or other people. Hopefully you get a chance to really test that equipment and whatnot. And what I've seen is wildfire really transitioning into buying into structure protection to where we see incident commanders and ops chiefs knowing they need to think about the structure end of things. It's not just the forest and uh, buying into utilizing us and whatnot now and getting that equipment out there and, and transitioning. We have, we use agricultural sprinklers for the most part. We use some wasp stuff. Everything has its advantages and disadvantages or its limitations. Knowing you talk about whether this pump is better than that waterous or hail or, you know, it's Chevy and Ford. Right? <laughs> yeah, right it really, it really comes down to that. The big thing is that you know what your capacities and capabilities are of that equipment and you know how to operate it. It's great to have 10 of these pumps on a, in a trailer, but if your crew doesn't know how to, to get them fired up or how to troubleshoot if they flood, they're just anchors. Right. So, yeah. So that's the big thing. You, you were talking about that yesterday, Patrick. It just blew my mind. You were talking about the Hail Mary. I want you to spit that out here on the podcast because I think firefighters need to know that. The old Mark III Hail Mary. Yeah. Well, I'll start with the equipment. Like, <laughs> Lou hit the nail on the head. Like, you got to know its capabilities, right? Everything works, but it works in a, you know, a certain way. And it's got its advantages, disadvantages. It'll work in this situation. But in this one, maybe you need a different pump or sprinkler head size. And uh, that's where I get down in the weeds with it is, 
comes down to nozzle size and flow and gallons a minute and pressures that you run and all this stuff and you could bore you with the the numbers but that's okay i'm a pump nerd too yeah. <laughs> it's um for me every piece of kit out there that you know you see on the fire line it's not that any of it's bad it's just you have to know where to use it yeah. and uh, i see everything in interface as a tool i see a sprinkler system as a tool i see a dozer line as a tool i see fire smarted veg management completed areas as a tool i see a firefighter as a tool i could go a different way but either way <laughs> not one piece will solve your problem it's a bit of a puzzle as we all know but you have to use your tools together a mechanic can't just go fix a truck with a crescent wrench he's got a plethora of tools with it we're no different so getting back to the hail mary with a mark three i mean we use mark threes all the time the nice part about them they're readily available interchangeable parts there's lots of pros to them disadvantages is two stroke and if you've got folks out there that are not familiar with them you end up with a flooding issue it can be a service issue with the pumps whatever but if you do flood your pump, this is something that, I don't know, uh, we've been training lots in our courses and people have never really seen before, but I got it from forestry. That's where I took a lot of my wildland training. And I mean, it's as simple as you, you flood the pump, but before you go, you realize that. And before you pull the spark plug, disconnect your fuel line, crank the throttle up to full, make sure your choke is off and give her a few pulls. I mean, depends on your pump, depends how bad you flooded it. But I find more often than not, you can get that thing to fire and it might not stay running on the first try, but it'll give you the burp you're looking for. And then while it, you can usually get it fired up before you connect your fuel line again. And while it's running, you can just connect your fuel line and it's off to the races and you're laughing and you just saved yourself 10 minutes of that's, that's knowing your equipment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other yeah. thing, like goes down to the training with it all, making sure you're, you're well equipped to do the job. We are really starting to get into the testing of everything. I mean, we have our go-to systems. We've got about six different pump systems we teach, but we're coming up with new ones, trying new ideas that our guys have. Yeah. It's everything from like you were saying the elbows to the 45s to because we're all about efficiency and if you can save a piece of gear here to use it somewhere else or you can eliminate a piece of gear that's not doing anything for you so you get more flow and pressure to do one more two more three more houses on the same system well that's bang for your buck that's that's just doing your job properly yeah. in my opinion so yeah it's just not common knowledge all the time no and, and it's tough and there's no one really to ask right the salesmen roll around trying to sell whatever they're trying to sell and people are buying it or not buying it or so it's nice that there's getting to be some guys like you guys that are out there that you can call up and say hey we're going to drop 20 grand on gear just give us some insights on what kind of gear obviously the salesman always thinks their gear is the best and will work the best you need to really think about that and um, even as we were developing some structure protection trailers in the last couple of years, right? Just phoning different people saying, well, you know, why do we have this? And why do we have that? And did we ever use this? Or is this just a thing that we carry around in these trailers that's completely useless? Well, that's, a, that's a deep question too. I get that phone call all the time. Well, we're looking at buying some pumps or new pumps. We got sprinklers and hose already, but we need to get pumps for them. And, you know, guys just, they want to know the best pump for the job, but it's not as simple as that. My first question after that is, well, send me your inventory on your trailer and we can get you a pump that'll do the best for you with what you got. But I mean, if you don't have much hose or your sprinkler heads are a certain size, certain pumps aren't, don't make sense for you. Or what do you train on and how do you do your setups is, you know, you can fit the gear better by knowing their capabilities and what they have for equipment. So, And in BC, like we've talked about this, the Alberta side of things, how business is done there. And that's where networking comes in and I've learned a lot from Patrick just in coffee talk and what you guys do in Alberta and, and sharing what we do in BC. And a lot of it is uh, very similar, you know, same circus, different clowns kind of thing. And whether it's this pump or that pump is irrelevant, but um, even now in the last few years of with the mutual aid with crews coming from Alberta into BC and vice versa, it helps having the same terminology and of course, every call you learn something from, if you're paying attention anyways. And so you'll learn the tricks of the trade that some Albertan taught you or some British Columbian taught you when you were out here. But I think it's important to be open to that kind of stuff and learning like, what have you got to offer me to make me better, right? Kind of thing. Take advantage of that opportunity for sure. Patrick and I were talking earlier week or two ago about sharing just terminology and when you got a pump at this end and this end of a system 
they're both pumping from a water source into one big system. He's asking me, so what do you call that? And I'm like, pump at one end and we'll pump at the other end. I don't know. We don't have a name for it, really, I don't think. <laughs> but guys know what they're doing. And he says, well, we call that counter pumping, right? And, uh, hey, that's a good name for it. So <laughs> that, at that my might end, <laughs> yeah. So, so the guys that are teaching Wildland Firefighter 1 and SPP 115, I'm telling them, like, hey, we should call this counter pumping. And... Hey, yeah, would some Albertan tell you that? Maybe, yeah, <laughs> it works, right? Let's call it the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, so it starts to spread. And, yeah. And I think that that's what I'm seeing. That's what I love. And, and the whole first reason for ever introducing your guys was to make sure that that kind of thing happened. Yeah. And I do it all across Western Canada with people. I want to jump into a little bit of something that you both had talked about. You both have talked about relationships. You've both talked about getting to know things and you've both talked about fire smart. And so to me, fire smart is one of the best and worst relationship tools that I've ever been a part of and, and got to work with. I've had people cussing me out from top to bottom after crews have done something to their land or by their land. And, and I've also had people that are just like, this is the greatest uh, going out to Martin beach outside of slave Lake every year and getting to work with those folks. And they're just into it and they love it. So fire smart. We'll start with you, Lou. What uh, love it, hate it. What, what's your, what's well, your takes? It's better than the alternative. <laughs> we pushed fire smarting, out here in BC a lot to where we've acknowledged subdivisions like Quail Ridge out by the airport in Kelowna. They were the first fire smart neighborhood in our kind of in our region kind of thing. Anicus Mountain out of Osoyas was the first fire smarted neighborhood in BC or Canada. I don't know. Like they're one of the first, put it that way. And that had a lot to do with the developer at the time, but the people bought into it, the residents. And I think there's, it's not a fix all, but I think like sprinklers or water systems or whatever, it's a tool that is going to help save, help a structure endure an onslaught of an ember transplant or whatever. And it's, an opportunity for the homeowner to help us out because they've been there for decades maybe they've got opportunity to help us out when we've got a half an hour to slap up some sprinklers and move on there's houses that we know you just drive by because there isn't a hope you could set up five deck guns on the house and it's gonna burn down yeah so i think it gives the homeowner some control over the destiny of their house or whatever, however you want to put that, right? It gives them an opportunity to make a difference on their own by raking up those pine needles, getting the evergreens, the junipers away from the house, all that stuff, right? I, it, yeah. yeah, I and, I, you know, putting gravel in instead of bark mulch and all that kind of stuff. Did it, he just say mulch? Yeah, that's his trigger word. You know, you're not allowed to say Maltra on me. <laughs> okay, I'm waiting for that story. But it, you know what? It gives it gives the homeowner some control because when it hits the fan, they have no control with their their pool of water and their garden hose. They're it's too late then. I'll tell anybody put the time and effort into fire smarting for sure. Patrick, well, I think Lou's absolutely right with that. I think maybe what the average person doesn't understand either is that there's, I think there's a large assumption and a reason why maybe it was emotional last year is everybody thinks, oh, they'll show up and they'll put a sprinkler in my house and everything will be fine. But Lou said, you might just drive by one because it's, it's unsavable. There's nothing you could do. And uh, I think that's key because for us out in the field, we do something we call structure triage. So we'll drive by the neighbor before we start work and figure out which houses are good on their own, which ones need a little bit of help and which ones you can't help. And the ones you can't help the reason we don't action those is twofold. One, it's probably unsafe for firefighters to be there because of the fuel load that's around. But two, and I think this is the one that escapes a lot of people is, I could put sprinklers on that house. And I have this conversation with residents all the time when we're out there is you could totally do it. Yeah, we can run the hose in your yard and go for it, but I'm gonna lose gear on that house. And that's one thing that's minor, 
But the bigger thing is it's going to compromise that system for all your neighbors that have a chance. So educating them that, you know, you're the weak link in the chain and that's why you're not getting a, a sprinkler on your house. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest things for me is, if, you know, you lose a house, an inch and a half hose puking out now doesn't make it to the next house and that house is threatened. Those are huge things. And, you know, every structure that goes down, I mean, what is the water line now? It's half inch to an inch, depending on the size of the building. And I mean, just the loss in the system alone for fire trucks to utilize hydrants if they're there or anything like that. I mean, that's a that's a huge concern for us. And you, if you lose a house on a system that's got sprinklers on it, you are losing capability in the rest of your yeah. protections. FireSmart is such a big fight, right? Because it's your own personal decision on what to do with your own personal money on your own personal land. And people come and tell you ideas, but you can't make them do anything. Um, then you have like communities that are as entrenched in the forest as you can get that have a bylaw for 25 years that you can only build a house with cedar shake shingles. And, yeah. and that blows up in your face. And then they come and say, okay, now no more cedar shake shingles. There's a bylaw that says you can't have those. And so it's conflicting and it's expensive and people get upset about it. Mulch, <laughs> the the story is simple. Uh, it, in Slave Lake, it cost us hundreds of homes, cost us our city hall, a bare exposed tar roof with no gravel coverage and uh, mulch around the outside cost us $32 million building. And then when we got to Fort McMurray, the very first house we pulled up in front of in Beacon Hill, fire's coming in. We're trying to convince everybody. We're trying to get people to evacuate. We're trying to get the firefighters convinced that this is actually going to burn down. Everyone's looking at us like we got two heads. And then the mulch of this house we stopped at, there's little fires. And I lose it. I'm effing this and effing that and mulch. And we should just let this one burn down. And, and I'm just, as I'm spraying the mulch <laughs> to put the house out. And uh, this goes on and on. And because a truck happened to park right there and because that hydrant had water in it, we were able to, to save that house. Right. Both its neighbors, the entire rest of the neighborhood went down. And so a year later when we came back and there's this house and you hear from the firefighters like, yeah, those people just wish their houses would have burned down like everyone else's. And it's like... I, I yeah. said the same thing <laughs> on the day that I was there. Their fence attached right to their house, their yeah. shed against their fence instead of pulled away. Yeah. All the things that you can do to fire smart house were like, this was the anti fire smart house. And uh, we saved it because we happened to be there and, and happened to be able to put that pressure to it. Yeah. So I, I hate mulch. If you're listening to this and you have mulch around your house, just don't call me. I don't want to talk about it. Just change it right uh put some rocks get it's a no-brainer <laughs> it's a no-brainer it's like having cedars under your soffits right? Right. growing right up into the soffits it's just gasoline there's so many things like do the personal assessment you can from the fire smart app look at your house call call some people in do what you can do um, and then earlier i was talking about that right is the the people that say i well i can't do fire smart because i don't know what to do first or i can't afford it or i can't just do something Right, rake up the leaves, trim the trees away from the house, uh, cut down a few trees, get the garbage picked up, whatever. Move the wood pile. <laughs> that, that cleanup that you do in the fall, hopefully, with raking leaves, do that in uh, the beginning of summer. Right, with the needles, clean out your eaves troughs. Like, you know what? If you don't know what to do, phone your local fire department, and your fire chief can probably run a pamphlet over, give you a ten-minute walk around the uh, your house. Yeah. And I would do this, 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 and this, and away you go. Yeah, firesmart.ca, the FireSmart app. Like, there's yeah. there's nowhere you can't find FireSmart information now. So, okay, boys, for me, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for sharing ideas back and forth. Thanks for helping to be part of these teams in the Western Canada that are driving these ideas forward. Definitely have a safe summer, right? I'm going to throw it out there, though. I want a prediction. It's good, bad, or ugly this year, Lou. What are you thinking? Hopefully it's not as bad as last year. You want some summer? It'd be nice, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're firefighters. We we don't wish bad things to happen, but if they do, you want to be involved. I'll go on the record. It can't be as bad as last summer. Uh -oh. <laughs> I know. I just uh, jinxed uh, us right there. That's oh, like saying have a quiet I know. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst that could happen, right? Oh boy. Yeah. No, I well, he, he, he did it now, Patrick. You can say whatever you want. You're okay. You're, you're not working this summer? <laughs> Patrick, you got to train like 10 courses. You're going to be all over Western Canada doing this. 
What, what are you going to run into out there? I got a little rule of mine. I don't predict. I, I have a saying that's not appropriate for air on all this predict, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I don't, I mean, I've done it in the past where I'm like, Oh, you know, it's been a really snowy winter. Probably not going to be too bad. And it's the other way around or, Oh, really dry winter. We're going to have a bad and it rains all summer. It just, I don't know. I'm no weather guy. I'm no forecaster. I just, I don't predict um, just a rule of mine, just go with the flow. But um, in the meantime, I always try and prepare myself and the people we teach and the guys that are teaching to, you know, prepare like it's going to be the bad one again. Well, I'm like Lou. I'm willing to go out there. I don't, I'm not superstitious. I don't care about that stuff. So I always, historically, I would say big snow, big water years are followed by big fire summers. It's not a rule. It's just something I've seen more often than not. Um, you know, you're up in Northern Alberta there. They've got pounded by more snow than they've seen in many, many years. And I think they're going to pay for that this summer. And then I think here in BC, you guys started uh, the phrase, what is it? Atmospheric river. Oh yeah. Big new term that they're using now for like, it's going to rain. And so you've had a lot of atmospheric rivers and a lot of rain and a lot of flooding. What comes after that is a lot of vegetation growing and then a lot of heat drying out that earth. And, and so I, I'm with Lou. I'm thinking it's going to be a, maybe not as bad as last year, but you better be prepared. Well, in the first half of my career, I can think of a handful of significant fires from the mid 80s to 2000. A handful of fires that were evacuated neighborhoods and stuff like that. After 2003, it changed every couple of years. That article you talked about, 2009, the West Kelowna complex. It just was every other year there was, it was like, holy cow, it's bad. Yeah. And in the Slave Lake, like we never had to practice our EOC opening because we just did it every year. That was cool. Maybe once, maybe twice, maybe more times. Yeah. You know, you didn't have to practice ESS because someone was getting evacuated to your community or some community right around you was getting evacuated. Yeah. Flood, fire, whatever. uh, there's no sense practicing what you're going to be doing for real right away. Yeah. And so uh, it just kind of carried on like that. So however it works out, have a happy uh, summer. Hopefully you get a few days off there, guys, and uh, I'll see you out in the trenches. Sounds good. Thanks, Jim. Grown Up Fire, uh, Season 2, Episode 10. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Growing Up Fire today. Follow me on Instagram at Chief Coots to comment or send questions. We appreciate your support.